Welcome to this week's episode of Big Human. I am here with Tom Cotton. He is the founder and program director at Mind Environment. He's a, an executive coach, a psychotherapist and a psychologist. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Richard. Very good to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, great to have you here. And yeah, I'm fascinated to understand uh, how you fuse these disciplines together and uh, what seems to be a rather unique approach that you're taking to, uh, I guess, what we might call them coaching and development with the, with the mind environment and the retreats that you offer. Um, so I wonder if, if we should start, uh, yeah, a little bit with the genesis of what it is, you know, the genesis mind environment and, and what it is. Mm, okay. So, um, well, broadly speaking, I'm a psychologist. Um, and as you know, psychology is divided up into uh, lots of different tribes, uh, the humanists, the psychoanalysts, the existentialists, uh, the behavioralists. Um, and so the, the, uh, the area of psychology that I have my roots in is, is psychoanalytic, um, but also slightly unusually um, an existential background as well, which is why I'm registered as an existential analytic psychotherapist. Um, and before I began working in psychology, uh, so before I uh, did my master's training and then uh, doctorate training, I worked in film for many years. Um, and uh, as a screenwriter, um, I was a music video director. Um, and the aspect of, of story that I particularly loved was um, understanding the weave between uh, the conscious narrative in the story and the unconscious narrative. And when you see great filmmaking, you see people who really understand that principle and how the two weave together and the significance of the major kind of thresholds in a story. Um, and so that interest in that kind of weave between consciousness and unconsciousness has um, informed what I do now in the work at Mind Environment. Um, and it's very much uh, in there in my core interest as a psychologist. So the uh, philosopher of science, um, Michael Pollyani, he wasn't a, an analyst himself. Um, he was a polymath, a very interesting uh, guy. Um, but his maxim was, we know more than we can tell. Um, and so his kind of equivalent of, of unconsciousness, he wasn't really sort of interested in the topology of unconsciousness, like um, somebody like Freud or Jung might be. Um, but he was, he was interested in what he called tacit knowledge. So what's residual uh, within ourselves that we know how to do, um, but we, we can't tell it because it's not conscious to us. So there's all this sort of the really basic operational stuff, like you don't have to tell your heart to, to beat or your digestive tract to, to digest your lungs to breathe. Thank God, you know, you'd be, you'd be tied up all day running the body. But actually, when you start to kind of open that idea out, there is so much of what we do in terms of how we use tools, for instance, you know, whether it's a, a computer or the tools of dialogue and interaction. And then when you start to get really complicated, 
how we use each other as people, how we build other people into our functioning. That's the bit that I'm really, really interested in. Because when you want to start examining what is it, what is it at the level of obstacles that is preventing me from doing whatever it is I'm trying to do, what gets in the way, um, to my mind, it's always down at that level. So deep level stuff that you have to kind of unpick to understand what is it in the world that I operate in that I've kind of incorporated into my functioning. And I have absolutely no idea what it is, how I do it. Um, so that to me is a really fascinating area. And the work is essentially um, how do you get individuals, leaders and teams down to that level of functioning so you can really get in there um, and, um, and take them to a place where they can discover some really important insights. So it's about awareness development because I think often the kind of the obstacles to awareness, they're, they're kind of up here. You know, our minds are so cluttered um, with, with stuff. Um, it, it's very, very difficult to see ourselves in the world clearly. So if you can get down to that level, you can, you can achieve some really, really useful insights that help you to see where you are more clearly. So that's, that's kind of fundamentally where all of those interests kind of weave together um, and kind of hone down into one area of focus. Right, right. And yeah, and as I reflect on that, what we often find in the business environment is that we are looking at above the service. What, what are the behaviors that we see that we'd like to change? What are the conscious thoughts that we have that we'd like to change? Um, but stopping and reflecting, even just that, right? Even just stopping to do the reflection to get a bit lower, a bit, bit, you know, in the consciousness, let's say, um, is uh, countercultural often. So I, and now I'm starting to see why, and presumably that's the importance for you then of taking people away absolutely, into a different environment. Absolutely. Because when we're in operational uh, mode, you know, which we are most of the time, um, we have to be up at that level. You know, you can't do the deep level thinking all of the time. Um, so you, you, you have to rest on all sorts of assumptions the whole time. You know, when somebody says something, I know exactly what they mean, and this is what I want instead. Um, you know, that when we have a target, we have an agreed target, there's all sorts of assumptions that we're constantly relying on the whole time. That's very important. We can't operate without that. The problem is where it gets complicated is in the fine tuning, what kind of tends to influence choices um, is at that kind of below uh, level aspect of, of human interaction. Um, and particularly when you're looking at change process, a lot of the obstacles to change are down at that level. So everyone intellectually knows, yeah, we've got a plan. We've hashed it all out. This is what we're going to do. Go. And then all of the obstacles that appear that get in the way, they're all down here at a level that you can't think about operationally. It just doesn't work. You get caught up here and yeah. it, you kind of end up spinning your, your wheels. So um, I think of it um, rather like, um, you know, when you lose your keys and you're in a hurry and you're rushing to the airport and you're, you know, you're a little bit panicked, you need the answer immediately. And all you can think about is 
where did I put those damn keys? And you're kind of searching frantically. And that's a little bit like trying to find the answer through an operational lens. It's very targeted um, and it comes with that kind of drive and energy. But actually the irony is, it's usually that moment that you go, I give up, I can't remember the keys. Yeah. You set, yeah. set off. And then as you're sitting back in the taxi and you go, bing, I remember where I put the keys. So when you let your mind start to roam outside of that kind of operational agenda, you start to see things differently. So that's, that's one core aspect that um, I find that if you're, if you're trying to do a deeper level piece of work with somebody who's in the operational mindset and, you know, they're answering emails and they're expecting, you know, give me the knowledge as quickly as I possibly can absorb it. And then let's get on with, you know, let's get back to work. You've got very little chance of doing the kind of the meaningful stuff that you want to do at the level that's really significant. So if you can get people outside of that mindset and just push all of that to the background and then create the conditions in which you can go deep, um, then you can find something really interesting and surprising down there. Right, right. And, and I guess what, presumably what you find then is, is people have to take a leap of faith that those insights will come, right? Because it's not like you could say, you know, by, by the afternoon on day one of this receipt, you know, you will guaranteed insights in these areas, right? They've got to just jump and have some faith that there will be value in the process. Yeah, and, and there I think you're kind of spelling out one of the the difficulties of doing deep level work because you know for obvious reasons if you're contracting with an organization they want to know what the outputs are going to be yeah. um and of course it's it's necessary to have outputs but if your output focus right from the beginning um it means that you what you're doing is you're creating another form of obstacle really yeah yeah, exactly. And, and I find that's often a tension, yeah, as you say, when we contractors and, and this kind of work, it's not possible to say, well, these are, the, these are the things you will know at the end of this process, or these are the things that you will have learned. It's not about skill acquisition. It's not about knowledge transfer. It's, it's something else. It's something else. Um, but I think actually one can, um, one, can tra- we, one can transpose that learning into um, into that framework because you know the, there's the skills that one can acquire there are, i think there are different sets of skills but for instance you know clear thinking um enhanced creativity better communication better capacity to be honest i mean you know how much time is wasted in organizations because people cannot be on, honest with each other because there's a real fear, fear of what happens at the level of conflict you know, what are we going to get into if we talk about something that's that's actually it's too real? Yeah. So there's an enormous value in it. And I think one can definitely translate it into outputs that are recognizable to an organization. But the thinking is 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 definitely different. Yeah. Yeah. And so just talk me through like a typical journey then for somebody, because you do one of these in France, right? And one of these in Scotland. Like, just give me an illustration of the experience. Um, I'm intrigued. So the retreat experience, um, and I should say at this point, we've, we've run one of them because for the last two years, uh, COVID has prevented us from 
from running any further. So we've got two coming up in France in April. Um, one is a leadership retreat and one is a personal development uh, retreat, which essentially the focus is it's similar, um, but um, it's a little bit broader. So it's personal and professional development. Um, so I'll tell you I'll tell you a little bit about the first program that we uh, ran um, in France, um, which again the focus was personal and professional development. So um, people came into the program with a challenge that they needed to work on, um, and for some people that was a, a work challenge. Um, and for other people, it was a relationship, a personal challenge. Um, actually, I think the reality is that there's a huge amount of crossover because, you know, who you are as a leader is very much informed by who you are as a person. Um, and the the content and substance of our leadership program and personal development program is very, very similar, really, because you're working with people. You know, as, yeah. as you know, given the title of this podcast, it's all, it's all about being human. Um, so we run the retreat in this um, magical, really is magical, um, quite unique village um, in the southern Languedoc. <laughs> and what's unique about it is it's, um, it's 16th century, and it was abandoned just after the First World War. And the current owner's stepfather um, discovered it sort of hacking his way through the kind of the brambles of the undergrowth. And there was one person left living in this village. And so he took it upon himself. It was his sort of life's purpose to buy up the village house by house and restore it with the help of friends, with the help of people who wanted to come, you know, stay somewhere amazing for a week and do some stone masonry. Um, and so he's been doing that for the, or he's died sadly about um, uh, about ten years ago. But uh, they continue his work, current owners, um, and so they've been working on it for about fifty years. Um, so the the village is privately owned, and it's in a hundred acres of its own woodland, which in itself is within about a hundred thousand acres of national park. So it's a, about as wild as you can get in Western Europe. It's really quite extraordinary. It's up at the top of the mountains and nestled into a little nook. Um, and so the idea is, uh, I love the place, so I find it transformational just being there. Um, you feel like you've arrived somewhere very special, very different. Um, and the first thing that you have to do is you have to switch off. Phone signal's not that good. Um, forget the internet. So you, re you really have to switch off devices. And then you're just into a kind of a completely different mode. The atmosphere of the, the space um, puts you into a sort of a different rhythm. Um, and so the, the first afternoon of the program is, um, it's really just about gathering everybody together, orientating them, um, briefing them on the work that we're gonna do. Um, and then we have a dinner on the first evening, so everybody has an opportunity to get to know each other. Because our contention is the group, as well as the facilitators, are the main receptacle of, of learning. So both in terms of the material that they're going to bring 
um, and they are a, a repository of knowledge in terms of the perspectives that they're going to bring as well. So therefore, starting with a group who has some kind of uh, sense of community because they spent a little bit of time together before you get into the work, I think is really important. Um, I imagine that you, you've been involved in lots of sort of group training programs, either delivering or as part of your development. Um, and, you know, over the years as a psychotherapist and a, and a coach, I've, you know, done both facilitated um, and taken part in programs. And what I notice is if you're going to ask people to go deep so that they can pull out this really important learning, you have to do it with kindness and it has to feel safe and secure. Um, and I have been part of group processes in the past where that really basic condition hasn't been met. And it can be, um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm referring to that because I think that's often a concern that anybody has about doing deep work. Mm. Um, you know, how confidential is it going to be? How safe is it going to be? Is something awful going to happen that I won't be able to manage? Um, so I've, I've done group work in corporate settings. I've done group work in, I used to run a residential uh, facility in, in London and um, our, <laughs> the, the therapeutic groups were, were never dull because we work with our clients experiencing psychosis and forensic clients and um, substance misuse. So quite often there'd be somebody in the group who was high on crack cocaine who was um, hallucinating and it, was, it, it got quite lively. Um, so the point being... Um, uh, that I that handling a group in a way where everybody feels it's safe and it's secure and there's some kindness and some respect, really important. Well, um, I just wonder if we could just pause there because yeah. I'm, I'm imagining there may be some people listening and thinking, yes, how that the how question, how how do we create that safety? It sounds like kindness is part of it. What else are you focusing on when you're seeking to create that safety? Um, so I think it's how you hold the conversation and I think it's how you facilitate it as well. So it's the expectation that you create. So, um, and the culture is set by the facilitators. So if the facilitators sit back while, you know, somebody's tearing into another group member and there's no attempt to digest it or put it back or reflect it, um, it can feel quite unsafe. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a lot about the, the culture that you create and also briefing that in at the beginning. You know, it's an expectation. And if you're right. coming here to a, to a group to kind of work out your frustrations, um, then you need to think of the consequence of that. Um, you know, and I think that's a basic ethical question as well. You know, if you're asking people to do work which involves them making aspects of themselves vulnerable, you have to give them that guarantee that it's it's going to be safe and productive. Yeah. Um, so Richard, just, uh, just looping back, shall I continue with this? Yeah, you continue. Yeah. I just, I was there. just, I just thought that that may be a, it was a question in my mind. It may have been in others that, yeah. I think it's a hugely important question. Um, and it's, it is what we brief people on at the beginning um, to remind them of that. Um, <clears throat> and so the core of the program is uh, three consecutive days. And um, we start pretty early. So um, there's a kind of a, a thematic symbolism 
Um, so we, we kind of structure it like a story, beginning, middle and end. And the story begins with we hike up the mountain at dawn and we watch the sun come over the mountains. And it sort of symbolizes this is a new beginning. Um, and then um, breakfast and um, uh, all, all of the kind of the functional stuff. And then every day starts and ends with a plenary, plenary group. So you're, I would imagine you're familiar with that structure. So mm. um, an open group, no agenda, um, but it's there purely to kind of surface what's going on in the group at the moment. What do we need to kind of uh, take into consideration, checking in with everybody, where are we at? Um, so you can just sort of surface some of the stuff that's starting to circulate in the group, but it's also kind of... It's a container mechanism because you're, you're giving people the space to just talk about whatever it is that's on their mind. Um, and then we go into the program proper um, and we blend, we pose a series of questions, um, which we call elements, 10 elements over the three days, investigating um, different questions like identity, meaning and purpose from different directions. Um, but the way that we ask the question um, is we, we blend together a number of different approaches. So if I ask you, for instance, uh, to tell me about yourself, um, oh, and similarly, if you ask me, we'll both give a sort of a, a potted question, you know, depending on the setting, it's either the, the kind of the social response or the business response, um, and we're, we're sort of quite good at kind of framing it in the way that we want it to be heard. Um, and it's almost like one sleepwalking, you know, to, did I really say that? I can't even remember what I said, you know. But you, if you ask the same question and you ask somebody to respond with a drawing, you'll yeah. get a very different answer. And then when you ask the group to comment on what they see in the drawing, you'll get an even deeper answer. And so it serves as bringing up quite quickly a different perspective that's unexpected. It brings the whole group into the conversation. And it brings the group with you to this deeper place quite quickly. So what we found by the end of the first day was we had got to a, a very deep place very quickly. Um, and of course... Um, you know, with deep work, the risk is that you're, you're bringing up stuff that's um, it's heated. Um, there's the potential for conflict, for upset. And that's the jeopardy. And it's, it's why I think uh, it's definitely a difficult and skilled place to navigate. Um, and I think it's why often people tend to, to stay away from it, particularly in leadership work, because this is a question about, you know, can we go here? Is that possible? Um, but what you find there, you basically, you just, you clear away a lot of the, the gubbins and the obstacles really quickly. And you get into the conversation that you need to be having. Um, and that's essentially the pattern that we follow after, um, uh, for each of those core three days. Um, but a really um, really important component is that we're, we're mixing up discussion. So what we bring up through, um, say, drawing or through an activity, 
Um, we then feed it into discussion. So it's constantly being processed. Um, and the activities are kind of paired. Um, that sounds rather like a food and wine menu. Um, but the intention is to, is to pair an activity um, with a question. Okay. So, so for instance, when um, near the end of the program, we're clearing the way for a new perspective um, what everybody works on is clearing pathways. And it's just a lovely activity to focus on. And you're not thinking, what's the answer? You're focusing on what's the pathway I've got to clear. But it, yeah. it filters through. It's really interesting. Um, and then when you need something quite meditative um, as an activity, um, we take uh, people, for instance, on a, on a two-hour guided hike. And it's a really good opportunity for everything to just kind of settle and then we do things like we ask people to um, bring back something from uh, the activity that just resonates with their thinking. So the whole time, and actually it goes back to um, uh, Michael Pollyani, uh, the philosopher of science I was talking about earlier. Um, he has a model that he calls vectoring between sort of different modes of thinking. Um, and in essence, the, uh, the fusion of the different activities is a way of getting people to vector between different states of mind. So now I'm being analytical, now I'm being open, now I'm observing emotion, now I'm listening, now I'm being creative. And if you, if you can do that productively, then you kind of, um, you, you create a much bigger body of knowledge than you do if you just kind of direct your head at something and hammer away at it, trying to find the answer. Yeah. So you kind of, you create breadth and depth um, and then every evening, really important activity, um, because we're in the middle of nowhere and we're in a forest, um, there has to be fire. That's really important. <laughs> it's primal. Um, and it's, it's just lovely being able to, to have a fire, sit around it in this magical um, uh, village. You know, there's no streetlights, there's nothing. It's complete pitch black outside as far as you can see stars you know you've forgotten forget what stars look like when you live in a city yeah. um and so the kind of the social aspect the community aspect is really important because again we're, we're sort of developing the strength of the group they can really support each other it's a really great vehicle uh, for learning um, and then at the end we get everybody to um piece together everything that they've learned from all of these different ways of, of thinking um, and piece it together into what we call a purpose map. So that's starting to bring this deep level stuff up. Now, what am I going to do with it? I've got to put it back together with the operational thinking. Um, right. so that last day is, is about fusing the two together so that people come out with a meaningful plan that they can execute. Um, what was lovely about that first program was that we encouraged everybody to uh, support each other with whatever plan they came up with. Um, and two years later, they are still coherent as a, as a group. They're in touch and they're supporting each other on each other's projects, which I think is, is wonderful. So there's a real sense of community. Um, and then uh, before departure on the final day, um, we debrief everybody. Um, and then we have a group follow-up about a month later, and then one-to-one -one, uh, follow-ups with everybody. 
um, because the other thing about doing deep work is um, you, as well as um, helping people to embed it, um, you want to feel like it's it's safe and that they've come through um, a real learning adventure, but that they can do something useful with it rather than, well, that was a really interesting, but what do I do with that now? Right. Um, and it was it was a very powerful experience, I think, for for all of us. Um, we had a two year follow up session um, just before Christmas, and uh, three comments stuck in my mind. Um, uh, one person said that it was like uh, falling in love; it was so intense. Another person said it was uh, a spiritual experience because it was so intense. And uh, one other person said, not that she's ever taken it, but she said it's what I imagine taking ayahuasca would be like. It was so powerful. (laughs) Wow. And that just, I think, is fascinating that you can... You can take people. To- <laughs> Sorry, just to say, but I don't suppose there are too many leadership development programs that people would describe in those terms. Well, do you know what? It's, it's really interesting. I, I work with um, a guy. Sorry, I now interrupted you, but yeah. no, 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 no. It's um, it's 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 relevant, um, Richard. I work with a guy who's a, a chief investment officer um, in the Middle East, and. He's really interested in ayahuasca, um, but it's also, it's quite risky. Um, and so I, th- I think, actually, we ended up having a conversation about this program, but um, I think what's really interesting is, you know, a drug like ayahuasca or any of the, any of the other hallucinogenic drugs is they they can take you to quite a deep emotional place and it's with us you know it's there the whole time um what we're very good at as human beings is pretending that it's not there but yeah. it's informing everything that we do um and um uh depending on the statistics that you believe there's a um neuropsychoanalyst called alan shaw who talks about the processing speed of the conscious mind is a 60th of a second, but the unconscious mind, I know those, those are very sort of blunt, um, blunt terms. So um, a, a neurologist would say that they're more or less meaningless given that, you know, the mind is such a complex integration, but if we just go with those sort of those basic terms, conscious mind 60th of a second, but the unconscious mind processes at 120th of a second. So in other words, twice the speed. So what's happening in interaction between people is you notice something and you think, well, I'm not happy or I feel a bit defensive or I like this person or whatever it is. Um, And you think that feeling has originated in you, but actually what's just happened is there's been two iterations already before your conscious mind thought, "Ah, something's just happened there. I need to have a thought about that. Um, so it's, it's operating in us the whole time, you know, that kind of level and and intensity of emotion, but we're very good, particularly in organizational life at suppressing it, which we need to do, you know, because we need to focus on the operational, but there are times when we need to bring the two together so we can see clearly, you know, so there's a more comprehensive, um, a more comprehensive uh, vision. So I, I tend to think of it as, um, you know, when you're flying at night, you're relying on your your optical vision, 
Um, but radar gives you this ability to see into the darkness. And ignoring what's happening at that level is like switching off your radar and saying, you know, because I don't understand it and I can't communicate with it and it doesn't make any sense to me and it doesn't, doesn't fit within the language of, you know, what we do professionally, then, you know, let's switch it off. Um, so we're, we're missing something, I think, really powerful that can help us to see um, the forces that we're trying to operate in more clearly. Yeah. Um, and so I think powerful drugs like that, they, they key into something, but actually what they're doing is they're just keying into a natural process. Um, and so again, you know, if we all have the capacity to go to that place and experience something immensely powerful. Um, but you've got to structure it in a way where you can get people there. Yeah. In a safe way. Cause obviously the part of the trick of that in order for somebody to feel like they've fallen in love or had an experience. They've got to be open and ready for it. Uh, yeah, they can't be too defended against the process, right? Absolutely. But then thinking back to that first program, um, it was really interesting hearing the reflections two years on. Pretty much everybody said, you know, I, I was scared. You know, it, it, there was a lot of unknowns there. I didn't know how it was going to work. Um. I wondered about the other people in the group. What were they going to be like? Were they going to be nice? Were they going to be, maybe I wouldn't, you know, share anything in common with them. Um, and there was, you know, probably at least half the group, I think, at the beginning were very defended um, and, um, and presented a lot of obstacles. But that's, that's group work. That's the nature of group work. That's what makes it so fascinating. Um, and actually, the most defended person on that group was the person who I think gained the most from it, um, because he said, I, I never knew it was possible to experience this depth of connection with another human being, which was very moving. Yeah. And he was yeah. somebody who was, you know, very smart, um, run a very successful business, um, but very, very defended and holding lots of fear and, and anger. And in letting people in, um, he let in this huge amount of learning. Um, and, uh, and he formed some incredible uh, relationships with other people in the group who, sort of, who went on to become a great supporter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, again, one of the things that I'm finding interesting here is reflecting on the the, the word you're using, learning, mm. and that seems to be, you know, sort of, I suppose a primary outcome here is people learning mm -hmm. new ways to think and learning about themselves. And it's my projection here, but it's my script is because my experience of the deep work, I, I resonate much more with healing. It's about mm. finding grief, finding, getting to the tears, healing, you know, the wounds and, and working, you know, with, with, with trauma. And it's interesting for me that you're coming at the, the, this concept of deep work from a slightly different perspective. Is that, is that conscious that, that, that your focus primarily is around learning or, you know, is healing part of this? I'm interested. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, of course, healing is, is, is definitely part of, of deep work. Um, 
I'm just wondering from which angle to to come at that. Um, so I think it. I think the starting point is awareness. So, um, you know, as we we sort of were talking about earlier, I I come at this you know psychological work from a number of different perspectives. So working with people one to one in psychotherapy or in coaching or group work, leadership work, um, and the common thread is always this is where I want to be. This is where I am now. And there's something getting in the way, and I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it will be couched in different language. So whether it's somebody in a leadership position who's moving up a tier in the organization and having to take on more authority, big one, that's a difficult one, more responsibility, taking on more of the projections of the team that they're working with, because that's unavoidable. Um, and there's something getting in the way of taking up that position of greater authority and responsibility, i.e., you know, real leadership. Or, you know, it could be say somebody um, who begins a piece of psychotherapy work and, you know, there's some deep uh, trauma or grief that's been suppressed that they can't access, you know, whether it's, it's something... Um, you know, ghastly like neglect or abuse or, or something, you know, the reality often is it's much more complex things that really kind of knot us up, yeah. get us stuck. And so I think that the basic question is awareness and what is preventing um, my awareness from, um, what is preventing me from expanding my awareness so I can see what's really going on here. The problem is when we try to tack tackle questions it's like that lost keys question we just kind of knock our head against that you know what, where did i leave the bloody keys you know um and um you just can't tackle that question in that way because the the awareness that you're you're trying to gain is it's all above it's all above surface and actually, the answers to what is um, what is disabling your awareness—the bits that you can't see—it's all it's all deep level stuff. It's all kind of knots at that level. Um, and one of the things, um, one of the kind of the basic devices within our minds um, that stops us going there, I think, is ego. So we all need an ego because the mind falls apart without a muscular ego holding it all together. So it's not just the kind of the narcissistic ego that sort of dreams of, you know, success and money and influence. It's the ego that literally just keeps the mind bound together because there's so many different parts of mind at play. Um, and it's the, the ego that I think is the, 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 the primary vehicle within our minds that stops us from hearing another person's perspective. So, you know, tell me what you think, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well, I'm just waiting for you to stop talking and then I can interject because what I think you're saying, in fact, I don't even care about what I think you're saying. I know what you're saying and I know what you're saying is wrong. You know, I'm being really black and white about it. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to hear another person from the perspective that they're coming from rather than hearing them as 
a threat, as a fantasy about who I think they are and what they mean to me. Um, and it's the ego that, that prevents that from happening. So I think a major significance of deep level work is that you, you, have to, you just have to let go of all of that kind of, I'm in control, I know what's happening, I know what you said, this is, you know, and you have to let go of that. And then you really, the world starts flooding in and the revelations are immense. So then what you do there is, yes, it's healing if, if the healing needs to happen, but it's also creativity, it's connection with other people. It's experiencing yourself deeply and observing how you operate. Um, and it's learning. You're learning, oh my God, this, you know, all, all of this stuff that I always thought was there in my interactions with other people, you know, why I'm defended is because everybody else has got a problem. And the learning is, no, it's me. It's, it's me and what I'm making when I enter into this situation. So, you know, like a, a, just a really sort of basic example of that. I'm not a particularly social person, so I always find um, parties slightly daunting. I think, you know, what the hell am I going to talk about? You walk into a room and you're feeling, you're already feeling a bit, um, a bit, you know, a little bit shy and a bit defensive. You probably think, oh, nobody's going to find me particularly interesting. So you've already got your defences up. And so your face mirrors what you're feeling. And you've got sort of quite a serious face. And, and so the first response, quite naturally, is you walk into the room and people kind of might flinch a little bit and they think, why is this guy? He doesn't look very happy. You know, but he's a bit uncomfortable. Maybe he's going to say something that's kind of, you know, a bit difficult. Well, you walk into this exactly the same situation and you just, you feel different. You feel energized. Um, you've got a bit of a smile on your face. You're open. People sense it. And you couldn't, you couldn't say to, you know, if you said, hey, everybody in that room, what does this person look like right now? They could, probably couldn't tell you, but instinctively people pick up what's going on. So there's that kind of unconscious processing thing um, because, you know, what we register at the level of the body, it's so subtle, it's so quick, it's so powerful. Um, and so just in that kind of microcosm of a moment is an example of, of what you carry with you and how your body is, has a massive effect on the people around you. Everybody knows, you know, a work situation where they've got, um, you know, there's a senior person in the organization who's a real enabler, who's really good at listening, takes on concerns, they're creative, they give you lots of rope, you know, try, you fail, they'll push you hard, you know, but um, they're supportive and they can listen. And conversely, somebody in, in authority who, you know, who micromanages, who's controlling, they project a lot of their anger and their frustration, feelings of alienation. And how, how the difference between those positions and how unproductive that can be, you know, because the knock-on effect is that uh, people don't speak up, so they're not being creative, so you're missing out on innovation, um, breaks down communication with Within the team, people leave organizations. So it, it, this has real tangible effect on the bottom line. Yeah. 
Sorry, that was a, a yeah, long, no, no, but it, I, I'm, I'm really seeing it now. And it's what you're doing is you're helping to me to develop, I suppose, a, a broader understanding of what we mean by deep work. And I think that's, you know, as I, as I sort of laid out that question, really, it's because it's become synonymous with me for healing. And there's part of me saying, oh, for God's sake, Tom, but isn't the really important stuff to heal the trauma, aren't you just sort of dancing around the elephant? And actually, I think what you're doing is you're helping to me reframe this, that there's a much greater richness of experience that we can kind of understand as deep work that gets in, yes, into cr- creativity, questions of purpose, identity, and not all of those are trauma bound. And we, and yeah, it's, I guess it's, 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 it's helping me to, yeah, think more broadly and, and, and have a greater awareness of, of what having access to what's below the service can, can bring for us. Yeah. So that's mm. what I'm appreciating here. Mm. Yeah, and no, I, I suppose I suppose trauma is sort of quite a specific word, and particularly in the leadership space, I think probably I mean, and it's not to say that people in senior leadership roles do not carry trauma with them. You know, as the converse is 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 true. I think everybody that I've worked with in a senior leadership position, you know, they carry with them difficult life experiences and and hurt and damage, just like everybody else. Um, but I think, you know, there's a, there's a question about what is the focus of this conversation? You know, what's the purpose of it? Where are we actually going to take it? How is it going to help me? What do I need to get from it? Um, and I think trauma potentially, it can be an off-putting word because, you know, well, okay, so what does that mean? Do we, are we going to do sort of primal screen therapy um, or something like that rather than, um, yeah, I guess back to that question of, you know, healing trauma might be part of the learning that one is doing. Um, but at the most fundamental level, um, so the term mind environment, um, I come from a, a psychoanalytic and systemic background. Um, it, it comes from the notion of, uh, you know, the, the way that we work, the way that our, our minds are wired, is it's it's like an environmental process. So we we have emotions, we have thoughts, different forms of cognition, uh, intuition, capacity to observe, to listen. Um, from an analytic perspective, we have personality or persona and, and sub-personas. So th- there's a massive constellation of different moving parts in there. This is mind rather than brain. Um, and... Um, so what I've, I've always been really interested in is how do you look at that as a kind of a system and how do you make sense of the system? Yeah. But when I work with somebody, you know, particularly the sort of the deeper end of the work it is what's always there at the beginning is you're bringing something that is not quite working. It needs to be updated. So in order to do that, we need to understand the system um, before trying to change it. So, um, I worked with somebody for quite a long time who was in a a senior position in TFL. And um, I was always so interested to hear about the updating processes of um, uh, the transport network, particularly the underground. And you think... And for people not familiar, TFL is Transport for London. It's the sort of, yeah, the transport in London. Yeah, exactly. Very much, yes. Um, And... um, when you think about it, you know, the infrastructure is, is Victorian. So they're constantly updating it. And I think that's a little bit like 
um, I think it's a good metaphor for mind that the kind of the Victorian aspect of our um, of our kind of mental wiring is the is the sort of basic infrastructure that we started putting in place when we were a month old, a week old, six months old, and the architect of that infrastructure was somebody who couldn't speak. They couldn't even think. They didn't have the capacity to have thoughts. But they're shaping the way that your they shape the way that your mind develops. And so, you know, it's completely understandable, I think, that one reaches a point in life where you've got to you've got to go back to the design and you've got to do some rebuilding work. So you've got to start kind of re- replacing the Victorian tracks and the signaling system and you upgrade it with, you know, the newer, more functional design fit for purpose mechanisms that you need in order for the whole system to to operate. Um, And the interesting thing is, I think, you know, there um, there are threshold moments in life that require that um that require that upgrade um and interestingly there moments in life those threshold moments where often if it's not handled well um you've got the capacity for for something to go really wrong so i think midlife is a really interesting um phase i'm not sure how how old you are richard but i'm I'm past the half century mark, so I'm well. Really, into- you're doing very well. <laughs> no grey hairs. <laughs> uh, no, I've got enough on the on the sides. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, so I'm well into to the that midlife um, question, and it's so interesting that um, you know the term that has always circulated is midlife crisis. Um, and that you know that's when people go off and buy their red Ferrari or, or whatever it is. Um, and the, there's an element of crisis because there may be a crisis of, of meaning or purpose, but actually um, it should be reframed as a midlife opportunity because it's it's one of those I think those major kind of staging posts where you realize you know I've come this far with this formula with this mind. And um, for the next stage of the journey, um, I need to go back to the design level. And so that's, that's where I think the deep work becomes really important because it's not just a sort of a little bit of kind of tinkering at the edges and kind of optimizing. Um, it's, it's, it's going back to the drawing board, um, but in a very managed um, and carefully controlled way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that, and that I've not, that's the first time I've come across this idea of, of, of threshold moments. But yeah, it's a it's a threshold, and it's like it can break either way, right? And and often yeah. those threshold moments can be people spiraling, and you know that mind environment that we've built isn't equipped to deal with this threshold, and or if we're conscious about it and we adapt the mind environment, actually it can be a an opportunity rather than a crisis like that. I really absolutely. It's 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 the reframing. Resonate. It's the development work that we need to do in order to um, to move on to the the next level. You know, because one thing that you can guarantee about life is it's not static. It's constantly throwing new stuff at you, and you know some of it will kind of fit within your operational remit, and some of it will just completely knock you sideways. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, but I think there are other threshold moments. I mean, I think you know, leaving school, university—that's the big threshold moment um, or transition point, however you want to put it. Normally, about kind of eight to ten years into a career is another big transition moment. It's usually when people are sort of starting to acquire a bit more expertise, authority, seniority, um, but they have—they haven't, um, <clears throat> haven't quite developed the kind of the weight of experience that they need yet. Um, and then that midlife piece and then retirement piece. And then there's many, many in between, actually, kind of sub-transition points. Um, yeah. And I think we can carry it over into organisations at large. And certainly what you'll find in organisations, they, you know, they hit a, a, you know, a blocker in the market or they find their business model isn't working so well or something happens and they have a threshold moment. And what comes to me as, you, as you're talking is that we – those the executives in those companies that then often rely on those very narrow thinking tools, if you like, and it's about well, how do we redesign the you know, the organisational chart, and you know what do we need to do with our you know financial mo- you know, model and so on, and they 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 tend to resist falling into sort of deeper work and and allowing themselves to expand awareness and, and try different thinking, ways of thinking and styles of thinking yeah, in, in order to re-architect the business. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I, and as you suggest, that's the moment where it's needed. Mm. Um, and there's something interesting, I think, going on with anxiety at that point because we're kind of anxiously searching for the, ses- uh, the, the, the solution. Um, and, um, and that anxiety can get in the way of doing the deeper work that's needed that instead of being kind of pinpointed, um, you're opening out and you start asking to consider everything. Yeah. So the way that I put it is, is that it's less sharpening the tip of the spear and, uh, and looking at is the spear the right tool for this job? Right. Yeah. God, I can tell you're a screenwriter. You're great with kind of metaphors and imagery. <laughs> You've always got one there. It's great. Um, well, I mean, that's the. I mean, that's the really interesting thing about story is um, the story is metaphorical, but I I find it a really psychologically true medium, and it's why we spend billions of pounds every year digesting story material because we're constantly in watching and viewing we're constantly reviewing and learning about the human journey um and if you look at a great piece of screenwriting it's deeply 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 psychological it's somebody who really understands human psychology so i always contend that that um that uh story particularly screen story um and i'll come back to that in a second as to why um, is is group psychology in, in action. So it's the psychology of transition. It's all about how to handle transition. Look at any story. It, it, you can learn so much from it. Um, the reason why screen stories, um, I think, particularly can teach you a lot, and given that often screen stories are adapted from stories on the page, um, but they're, they're a very particular kind of medium. Um, so whereas with a novel, um, you can be as long as you want. You can, you can be, you know, 100 pages or you can be war and peace. 
and you can see inside people's heads, you can hear their thoughts, their interpretations, and you've got no limit on the budget. You know, it could be Siberia, it could be the North Pole. But as a screenwriter, you've got these really severe limitations, which is nobody's going to watch your 15-hour epic, you know, unless, well, unless it's a, a Netflix epic or something like that. But, you know, the unwritten rule, um, unless you're a major director, is you've got 90 pages of script um, before the audience leaves the theatre. And it's all to do with the, with the kind of the, the mechanics of the business. You're going to put on two or three screenings a night. It can't be a two and a half hour epic, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so you've got nine, you got ninety pages to tell your story, and you can't see inside anybody's heads. You can't hear their thoughts. So you've got to externalize everything that's being felt. You've got to externalize the journey through imagery, through metaphor, through subtext, through dialogue. Um, and so therefore it's a really psychological medium. Um, I, I can think of several novel writers who, who've written about, um, they've written screenplays and they would never go near it again because it's so hard. <laughs> um, so y- you have to, you have to draw into service, um, storytelling, uh, off the page. So through what you suggest, through genre, genre is a really interesting thing because your genre is really, it's a, a kind of a, an alluded to story when you see a gunslinger walking down a, a street towards a saloon. You know, there's a whole narrative that mm. opens up without having to tell any story at all. And so this is why genre is so important in, in, um, uh, in, in filmmaking because you 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 bring with it this kind of this whole story world that's attached to the to a genre and then when you fuse genres and you get working against each other always remember um who was it with film critics who called alien um uh, truckers in space it's brilliant brilliant because that's <laughs> what that movie is it's a horror film about truckers in space anyway that's a bit of a, a digression but um but I can start to see how this is informing your work because it seems to me that when you take people on these experiences, that the mind, your, the mind environment experience, that you're you're having them externalize right through picture, through metaphor, you know, through sort of self revelation, and and in a sense that they're, they're sort of narrating their own. Maybe this sounds too cliche, but their own movie, right, as they go through this experience. No, absolutely. And we, we collate all of the imagery that we gather during the, the, um, the course of the programme. And it, it is, it's literally, it's a story that unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to that Pollyanni quote, Michael Pollyanni, the philosopher of science, we were talking about earlier, um, you literally, you discover, you know more than you can tell. You, know, you draw something, somebody else sees something in the drawing, and you go, bloody hell. You know, that, that, that's just been in my mind somewhere as an unexpressed thought. But now that I see that thought and I see it in front of me in writing, that's an unbelievable revelation. Um, so, yeah, storytelling. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if you've done any thinking, because something that's crossing my mind now, and there may be other people thinking this, is that 
it's all very well if you know you've got you know the opportunity to go off, go off to the depths of you know France for um for three days. But if I've just got you know two people in a boardroom, you know, two hours in a boardroom, I've you know managed to get that far, and I've got a space where I've got the potential to do some deeper work. Are there you know like a few principles that people can consider applying that might improve their chances of getting to a great to a level of depth with a group? Mm. Time. It's a it's a journey. You're making a journey, and you can't get from here to here in you know thirty minutes. Yeah, if you're going to do it safely. I mean, you can the 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 uh, the CIO that I was talking about earlier, where we had um, we've had several conversations about you know his interest in 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 hallucinogenics as a way of sort of getting to something more fundamental. Um, I call it uh, his desire to take a howitzer to his brain. He's trying to smash this sort of great big hole through a level of consciousness, and and that causes trauma. So you can get there. I mean, if you got into a punch up with somebody, you'd be in that place pretty quickly. Um, but you don't want to do that. That's destructive, you know. I'm obviously when you go deep, it's not all about, you know, aggression or conflict. It's about lots of lots of very profound things. Um, but I think if one tries to do it too abruptly, it's not, you're not doing it sort of a carefully managed way. You need time to get there. You need to be able to switch off that anxiety, just keep it at bay. Um, and then time to get deeper and deeper down to the level that you need to kind of operate in. Um, and then you need time to, it's like deep sea diving. Not that I've ever done it, but, you know, you come up too quickly, you come up with the um, the bends. Maybe that's a terrible metaphor. I'm not sure, but um, um, yeah, I know. you need time to come, to come back and then put it all together and do it constructively. So time is, is one. Providing enough time, time, I think, is, is absolutely, and it's the thing, of course, that everybody doesn't have. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, unless and depending on the nature of the organisation, and that's what's fascinating about fascinating about doing this podcast, of course, is where people have consciously designed organisations that um, allow for much deeper thinking and take away a lot of the um, the drivers of this sort of, I suppose, modern form of doing business, which is very busy. Um, people do have time. Right. So, yeah, the, there's a couple of guys who I've invited onto this podcast who are the CEOs of organizations. And I say, when do you want to come on the podcast? And they're like, we'll pick a spy time in the next three months. My diary's free. So, I think what's interesting is one can create organizations where there is time, but often the, the organizations that need this depth of thinking the most are exactly those organizations that have such a paucity of time. Well, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a very good point. Um, and and if you're in the if you're in a real hurry to get somewhere quickly, it means that you're, you're probably unlikely to a lot the time. It also means that you're not going to do the meaningful thinking. So you know if you a lot the time you do the meaningful thinking, you, the value of what you pull out of that is going to be you know worth so much more than shorter space of time but insufficient thinking. Yeah. And I think that's behind a lot of this movement, you know, the no meetings Monday or no meetings before lunchtime. And I think people are starting to tap into this and understand that we've got to start 
restructuring our days, restructuring our organizations to honor this, you know, these deeper capacities that we have as human beings. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's a very good point. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Anything else you'd offer other than, other than time as a kind of, as a principle for, for deep work? Well, I think going back to that question of how you, how you frame it. So expectations, um, briefing, you know, that we're going to be working in a different way and it's going to feel unfamiliar. Um, and you, it's going to feel a bit unknown. You'll feel a bit disorientated. Um, and making sure that the structure that you're building in is a safe structure. Um, so um, I suppose as an analytic practitioner, um, I'm always trying to think what's the unseen stuff here that I haven't thought about. So, you know, this is, this is what everybody's saying on the surface. Yes, we're happy to do this. No, we don't need to do that meeting. You know, that's fine. We can contract in this way. Um, but actually looking out for, you know, what am I picking up here beneath the surface? That means what I really need to do is this. I could build in quite a careful structure here. Mm. Looking out for this, that, or the other. Um, and just being really thoughtful, reflectful, uh, reflective and mindful of, of, you know, what you're getting into. Given that every action, um, I think is, you know, every action and interaction is a kind of, um, is a revolving door threshold. So you kind of go through it think I'm, you know, I'm heading for the lobby that way, but actually be, it kind of shoots me out in the other direction and I'm somewhere com completely different. You know, what we all meant was that, but what happened was that. So why, you know, so just building in, um, building in structures where you can kind of handle all eventualities and be thoughtful about what's happening as it's happening. Yeah. 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 Being responsive to the moment, which comes back to the safety where if you're not in a position where you can kind of respond to what's emerging and, and deal with it such that you maintain safety, it's yeah, it's potentially going to be, you, you're going to be in a difficult situation once people stop feeling safe. That's it, isn't it? You've lost absolutely, absolutely. It's a difficult one because you need, you know, you you need an element of of risk. You know, there's a lot of excitement there too. I I think it's an extraordinary adventure. Um, you know, because you you you. I mean, when I take part in group processes, and I feel that kind of natural resistance. Oh God, I don't want to go there. You know, that feels uncomfortable. Um, I don't want to kind of open myself up. Um, I don't want to be vulnerable to criticism. Um, but I always know that once I, I take the leap, that I'm going to come out of it with something really, really powerful. Um, so it does, it does involve a bit of a risk, I think, necessarily, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's where the growth, well, the learning comes from, the growth, you know, the growth comes from. It's being willing to take that risk. And maybe that goes back to the, the expectation setting here is that there's a, an implicit request here for people to take a risk yeah, yeah, in order absolutely. to have the learning. Absolutely. The expansion. Risk, risk, adventure, learning. Right. Right. A bit like falling in love, a bit like taking ay ayahuasca, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Or what I imagine, because I've, I've never, I've never 
taken out ayahuasca, um, I would be far too scared to do it. Um, uh, the closest I ever got was in my early 10, 20s taking LSD, and um, and that was um, that was not a place I'd want to go back to. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm the same. I've always been. I've, I've, I've never taken, taken. Uh, yeah. Well, I have taken. I, I've had um, a, an experience with weed, which was a, was mildly hallucinogenic. But I've never consciously taken a, you know, a a, a, a hallucinogenic per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, this has been uh, a wonderful conversation. I've I've learned a lot. Uh, it's given given me a different appreciation for what we mean by deep work. Um, yeah, the importance of narrative, consciously thinking about narrative, um, yeah, in the work that we do. No, it's been really um, interesting. And we said at the beginning, we weren't sure how long we were going to talk for. And I'm not sure how long we've been talking, but I think it's a, it's a while, maybe uh, an hour and a quarter or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been, it's, been, it's been, well, we've used plenty, of, we've, we've given ourselves plenty of time, of time Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's needed. I mean, you know, going back to that theme of time, time is what's needed if you're to allow something to kind of unpack and unfold. Um, time is a precious commodity. Mm. Um, but, um, well, Richard, it's been, it's been great meeting you, really interesting. Um, thank you so much for having me on your, your podcast. No, thank you. And uh, I know you're about to go off skiing. So, uh, yeah, have, have fun with that. And, and to remind people, so have you, have you still got availability on, I think you've got retreats coming up in, did you say April? Yep. So 24th to the 28th of April is our uh, leadership program. Um, and that's in Bardu, the, the wonderful, magical uh, wilderness village in France that I was telling you about. Um, and then the, uh, what's called the individual program, which is personal and professional development. So slightly broader focus, um, is the week after, and that's the first of May to the 5th of May. Um, and whereas the leadership program is, it's a, a group of people in leadership positions, senior leadership positions, the individual program is, is more mixed. Um, and, um, uh, could also actually be of interest to coaches and mentors um, and anybody working in um, development um, yeah. as a self-development program. Um, in fact, on that first program, we had um, one person who was um, who ran a coaching business and um, another person who is a psychotherapist. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds very appealing to me. I, uh, I'm not sure I could, I'd get a pass right now with two four-year-old boys <laughs> to spend the... A week in France on my own, but it, um, yeah, I'm sure that would appeal. Um, mm. wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll put, we'll, we'll certainly put links to the, uh, the mind environment website so people can sign up there. Um, oh, is, I'll send you links to the programs as well. Actually. And the programs, especially, yeah, mm. we can, we can do that. Uh, any, anywhere else you'd might point people who, uh, found these topics interesting. Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, you mean a, uh, uh, some reading or... or reading or anything that just comes to mind is there any any other resources you've found on your journey that have been particularly valuable that you think might, people might want to check out or maybe it's it's all there on the mind environment it's just a, a thought 
That's a really, really interesting question. Some of it's there. Um, well, it's on my mind at the moment. It, it's probably not that relevant, but I just read, uh, just finished reading the most wonderful biography of uh, Nietzsche, the philosopher. Ah. Um, by Sue Prideau, I think she's called. It's the. It was, I think, one of the funniest books I've read for a long time. And you wouldn't I think expect you to say funny. But... <laughs> it, it, no, she's just such an acute human observer. But Nietzsche's work is, uh, I mean, the man was extraordinary, disturbed, troubled, but visionary, much misunderstood. Um, thanks to his rather unsavoury um, uh, sister who uh, who took over his legacy and sort of remodelled his his work to um, um, uh, a kind of a, a more um, well, I mean, put absolutely um, plainly, she was anti-Semitic and had started an anti-Semitic colony um, in the Americas and. Um, uh, Nietzsche was so disturbed by his, her behaviour that he'd cut off communication with her um, because he loathed uh, anti-Semitism. Um, and unfortunately, um, she then took over his legacy and rewrote a lot of his work. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But he, he's a fascinating thinker. Um, so I would suggest reading that book. <laughs> right. Okay, good. Well, we'll put a link to that book. And I know I've not studied him, but I also understand he he had to, to a dark side, right? There was, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. Well, um, we'll put a link to the book. And thank you very much once again. Thanks for your time. Uh, yeah, thanks for um, sharing um, so openly about uh, you know how you work and this approach. Uh, it's been yeah. fascinating. Absolutely, pleasure. Lovely hearing more about what you do as well. Richard and um, and um, well, I hope we speak again. Sure, yeah, I uh, hope so. And enjoy enjoy the skiing. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Right. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.